All right! Uh, this is the, the founding principles of this country, which I thought were really great, and I gave, devoted my entire life to protecting and uh, ensuring that would continue. And uh, having uh, internally, having, I mean, the, the oath of office is to protect and defend the Constitution uh, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And now the real threat, the only threat we really faced were really domestically we, if we had a domestic, we could change, we have done to ourselves fundamentally what the terrorists wanted done but could never achieve. We have done to ourselves. And this is the domestic threat that our constitutional and the oath of office that we took was, was given to prevent. I mean, this is the only way we, no, no other country in the world could have, uh, could have done to us what we have done to ourselves. And so, uh, this is the time when all good Americans need to stand up and oppose this. And that is one William Binney, former high-level NSA agent, talking about the infringement of your rights through a constant fight of net neutrality and what information you feed social media, the algorithms that it passes through, and perhaps flags you, a benign, innocent American or citizens wherever you may be of the world. These are some of the issues that we face and most likely you have no clue of the threat that you're facing. Now, I primarily speak to Americans because this country has never seen a king. This country has never seen a queen. This country has a republic based on democratic values of election. Free, fair election. Now, how free and fair is that? And only you can make that change if it becomes corrupt. So, Impeach Mass Media is a campaign started a few months ago to coincide along this program, Discussions of Truth, which you have tuned into on Winwood Radio. And I'm right here in studio every Wednesday at 5 o'clock. Happy New Year 2019. I hope your holiday season was outstanding. Regardless of how and what you decided to celebrate, you've ushered in yet another year, an astrological cycle that we all hope to enjoy each and every breath of it. Hunger Games! Discussion that we'll be having today via Alex DeWall. He'll be joining us. He comes from Tufts in Philadelphia, I believe. Listed as one of Atlantic Monthly's bravest thinkers, 2009. And no, this is not mainstream. You won't hear anything mainstream on this program. 
if you're not familiar with where we come from here at Discussions of Truth, well, we basically come from a space of having our airspace, that would mean the oxygen and the air that we're breathing and that is above our heads, violated. More information at my website on that, but if you quickly Google Zika Miami Beach, you might get some results that lend you an explanation. Ian Trottier, that's I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. If you go into the contact section, or even at Impeach Mass Media, you'll find an article written for Honey Colony. And yes, by the way, the honeybee population is in dire straits. Colony collapse disorder is a real thing. Hmm. Does that coincide with Hunger Games? What are Hunger Games? Because we're going to use the phrase with Alex here in about 10 minutes. Mass starvation, a political weapon. So, listed as one of Atlantic Monthly's Bravest Thinkers, 2009. Author of the book, Mass Starvation, The History and Future of Famine. Alex DeWall presents his case for Operation Starvation. And he doesn't speak of the 1945 U.S. Army Air Force Initiative under Admiral Chester Nimitz in the Japan Theater. In its primary use, the verb, to starve, is transitive. It's something people do to one another, like torture or murder. Mass starvation as a consequence of the weather, has very nearly disappeared. Today's famines are all caused by political decisions. Monsanto? Are they in politics? Super PACs. Republican Party. Democratic Party. Yet journalists still use the phrase man-made famine, as if such events were Unusual. The organization I work for, says Alex, the World Peace Foundation, has compiled a catalog of every case of famine or forced mass starvation since the year 1870. Now, I was recently in a city in Europe, in the United Kingdom, founded as a Roman city, Ibericum, in the year 79. Could starvation have been used going that far back? I don't know. But let's concentrate on 1870 in the past little over 100 years, 150 years. That killed at least 100,000 people. There are 61 entries on the list responsible for the deaths of at least 105 million people. About two-thirds of the famine deaths in this period were in Asia, about 20% in Europe and the USSR, just under 10% in Africa. That right there should be alarming because typically if if you've lived your life the span of most likely three or four decades plus, you would associate starvation 
like I do with Ethiopia. Yet, according to that list dating back 170 to, excuse me, to 1870, list compiled of 100,000 deaths caused by starvation, only 10% of those cases were in Africa, yet two-thirds in Asia. The British Empire used mass starvation as part of their tactics to conquer the country that we all know as India. The biggest killers were famines that resulted from political decisions, among them the Gilded Age famines, the Great War famines in the Middle East, including the forced starvation of a million Armenians, the Russian Civil War famine. I mean, as you listen to this, do you have a problem with someone else purposefully starving you or your brother or your sister or your mother or your next-door neighbor or your uncle or a good friend? How would it feel or has it felt or does it feel when you know there's nothing you can do about it. Stalin's starvation of Ukraine from 1932 until 1934, now known as the Holodomor, the Nazi hunger plan for the Soviet Union, the famines during the Chinese Civil War, the starvation inflicted by the Japanese during the Second World War, and by Mao Mao's great leap forward in 1958-1962, the largest famine on record, that's killed at least 25 million people. And that would be China, I believe. Alex received his Ph.D. in social anthropology from Oxford University in 1988 for his thesis on the 1984 Darfur famine in Sudan. He's widely considered an expert in Sudan and the Horn of Africa. Why are there people in the streets of the United States that are homeless and hungry? Why are there people in your town, regardless of your country, that are homeless and hungry? And of course, I'm segueing. That's not the point being made here. We're talking about mass starvation. But there should be enough food to go around here, folks. He's widely considered an expert on Sudan and the Horn of Africa, currently Alex, executive director of the World Peace Foundation. And do you even care? Do you even care that a man is homeless and, or a woman is homeless or a child is homeless and hungry in your street? Do you even care that millions are being starved to death in Yemen right now? You probably don't, is my guess. But you would if it happened to you or someone close to you. So getting back to Alex, he's executive director of the World Peace Foundation and research professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, previously a fellow at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, Harvard University. For DeWall's most current writings, visit the blog Reinventing Peace, Google it, Alex DeWall is related to British barrister John DeWall and journalist on the caucuses Thomas DeWall. And he'll be joining us in just a few moments. 
to discuss his book, Mass Starvation. So we'll get a kind of angle here of, yes, a tactic of warfare that is used by people more powerful than you and I most likely, unless you happen to be one of those very, very powerful people. My guess is you probably aren't, but you might be. And Alex is taking his time to join the program today. After being scheduled for last week, I had to reschedule last week's program. And today's slot has actually been awarded to Chief Scientist of NASA Langley, Dennis Bushnell. But Dennis, because of the government shutdown and lack of funding to fund the government due to the current administration that occupies the White House, and it's not the first time this has happened, so I'm not pointing fingers, certainly. Dennis has had to reschedule, so we'll have that coming up as, uh, coming up as well. I'll be announcing that date. Climate change it will be discussed. Something called halophytes, the Sahara Desert, water, waste, and clean. And bottom line, that we'll be distra- d- discussing with Dennis lessening oil dependency. And if you take an octopus, take an octopus, an octopus has multiple tentacles. And if you label that octopus, again, I don't like to point fingers, but if you just happen to do this, if you label that octopus Rockefeller Foundation, you'll find so many various tentacles uh, weaving their fingers, suctioning with those cups through so many different... They take, they take for instance, the University of Chicago, a Rockefeller-founded institution. There's also the Rockefeller University. Why do I mention the Rockefellers? Weren't, weren't, they, weren't they facing an antitrust lawsuit because they had a monopoly on oil in the United States? Isn't this free? Isn't this a free country, free trade? No. Yet, as that company dissolved into what was it, six or five or six different smaller companies, they maintained being the largest shareholders of each of those companies. And one of them happened to be former Standard Oil of California, Chevron Chemical Corporation. Why do I talk about this? And what does that have to do with climate change? What does that have to do with wastewater? What does it have to do with oil dependency? Elon Musk. Because looping back to the Zika scare when it came ashore to Miami and South Florida a couple years ago, and yes, we're nearing our 100th episode here of Discussions of Truth, it just so happened that a, the Rockefeller Foundation funded a team of scientists in the Uganda forest of Zika, the Zika forest in Uganda, that extracted this virus known as the Zika virus from a macabre monkey's brain. Yes, they funded that. In so much that today, 2008-19, they own the patent on that virus. Yes, it can be replicated. And if you have the proper credentials, you can actually order a vial of the Zika virus and study it in your lab course, paying a small royalty to the Rockefeller Foundation. So let's bring it to the flip side and say, wait a second, what was the outcry here locally? The Zika virus, a pesticide named Nailit, 
or other trade name, Dibron, okay, that the European Union just so happens that they deemed it illegal because there is a known neurotoxin. <coughs> Pardon me. Yes, it was known out of studies of Sweden to cause microcephaly in a developing fetus. The same argument the CDC out of Atlanta was saying the Zika virus. So is there a catch-22? Why use this? Why use this pesticide? Europe's banned it. The governor of Puerto Rico is rejecting the shipment of it. Oh, but the cry of the locals in Miami Beach and Wynwood went deaf, and it was used. So what does this have to do with the octopus and the and, and, and the Rockefeller Foundation? And why do you even care? Why would you even care? Why do you even care that millions in Yemen are being starved? Because when it happens to you, then you change your outlook. And you may change your approach to how you view life. Yes, the Chevron Chemical Corporation engineered, largest shareholders, the Rockefeller Foundation in the 1950s, engineered that pesticide. Now, apart from that, putting two and two together, I don't know. Why? But it may have something to do with a guy named Anthony Sutton out of Stanford Hoover. He's now no longer alive. Rest in peace. But Anthony gave an address in Miami Beach at a political convention in 1972. And as he re- returned, he revealed various information about his research. And he returned to Palo Alto. He was reprimanded. And that eventually led to his dismissal from the Hoover Institute. And he, because he said, look, I, I will not. I refuse. I refuse to conform. I will tell, I will give all of my research. And in a nutshell, what he talks about is a Hegelian dialectic, which means basically controlling the opposites to dominate the nature of the outcome. A la Dr. Judy Mikovits, who joined the program a few weeks ago. Catch her episode. I urge you, retrovirus scientists, National Cancer Association and you heard it on this program. If you've heard her, you heard her voice. This country needs to start somewhat of a revolution. And it's a media revolution that needs to be started. So, lots of amazing guests in the past. Lots lined up here. Uh, we've got Kevin Ship uh, joining the program. Uh, stay tuned, folks, for Alex DeWall as we talk about mass starvation. Happy 2019. I will return and be right back with you. Enjoy little James. Predictions come to pass this year. Did they know not North Africa would it rock? But what they know, we don't know. That's how they keep it from us. So I burn the fire from the courts to the cops. Spiritual wealth is what fills my cups. I use this hip hop to profess my love. I am not a pop star, I'm a motherfucking fuck. I'm a fiend for the truth. Drugs. 
fucking lean off a liver e pub, you see me? They let the wrong one in when they let me in. You understand what I'm saying? Are you hearing me? I hear what they're saying with the undertone. They're telling me they went to Iraq to help them grow. They're so arrogant and so obvious. The true pours from the ground in Fallujah, you see me? Sometimes you All right, well, Metallica Force is always James Hetfield, if it doesn't pump you up. Uh, perhaps a concept of mass starvation will. We are joined by Alex DeWall this afternoon. Alex, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Alex, thanks for joining the program. Happy 2019. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. Well, I'm the executive director of, of an organization called the World Peace Foundation that has been striving for world peace for 109 years, it will be this year, and wow. have, haven't yet haven't yet achieved Found it. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were set up by a, a, a Bostonian publisher called Edwin Ginn in 1910 with the aim of, of educating the people of the world to, of the evils and horrors of war and for campaigning for peace. And a small organization, but we, um, we do our best. Um, I, I took on the job of running the foundation about um, seven and a half years ago. Mm. And my career up to then had been almost entirely in Africa doing really two intertwined issues. One was work on uh, mediating some of Africa's most difficult conflicts, such as Sudan and South Sudan. And the other was working on humanitarian issues and studying famine, and in particular the way in which malign politics and brutal wars create mass starvation. Mm -hmm. um, and I started my career on this back in the 1980s. Um, and then uh, at a time when there were many terrible episodes of famine, most infamously in, in Ethiopia and, and, and Sudan. Right. And then famine sort of faded from our consciousness. It became a, a much less of an issue until it suddenly and alarmingly made an appalling comeback in the last couple of years. And really the story of how we nearly conquered famine but yet allowed it to return was the subject of a, a book that I published a year ago. Right. Right. Go, go, go ahead. Do you, have, you, have you stopped there? That's, that's fine if you've stopped there. But if you uh, have a thought to continue with, please do. So, I mean, the, the basic thesis of my book is that we tend to think of um, we tend to think of famine as a natural disaster. It's sort of right. the concept of famine resides in part of our brain along where, where it's close to concepts like you know, drought and climate change and failure of food crops and you know, Irish potato blight and so on. And it's a quite different part of our brain to that associated with mass atrocity and extermination and genocide. And I argue that actually this is a mistake, that we should see famines as, as really on a spectrum. And increasingly during the 20th century, and certainly with the recent ones, the famines that we have are more over to the extermination, deliberate starvation end of that spectrum than they are to the drought and mm -hmm. um, the harvest failure end, 
uh, end of the spectrum. So I, I give a story a really which shows how the, the famines of the late 19th century were associated with um, imperial conquest and the famines of the mid 20th century were associated with total wars. I talk about an, a, a, one of the worst atrocities of the 20th century, which isn't much written about, which is the Nazi hunger plan. Mm -hmm plan of the the German invaders when they declared war on the Soviet Union in, in 1941 to reduce the population of Ukraine and Belarus and parts of the Soviet Union by 30 million people that's three zero million people wow by the means of starvation and had they achieved it that would have been probably the biggest mass atrocity of the 20th century unfortunately they, they didn't but they still managed to starve to death about six million people and one of the questions I ask is, why do we not talk about this? Why were the, the, the perpetrators of these starvation crimes not prosecuted after the war? I mean, uh, people were prosecuted for the gas chambers, for the killing squads, for you know, the invasion of Russia, etc., etc., but not for mass starvation. And one of the reasons was that the British and the Americans also used starvation, not on the same scale, but they did use it as a tactic of war. For example... In 1945, when the um, U.S. were closing in on Japan and there was a debate, well, should we invade Japan with a ground invasion, which would cost many hundreds of thousands of lives? Should we drop the atomic bomb, which, of course, is in the end what happened? Or an, a third alternative that was discussed and also partly implemented was starving Japan into submission, which was called Operation Starvation, which didn't go as far as it might have done, because the war ended quite quickly. But nonetheless, starvation was one of the weapons of war that the, the US and more particularly the British actually used during the world wars. Um, and then I talk about the, the post-World War II famines, which were the biggest ones were those of the communist dictators. Um, Stalin had starved the Ukraine in the 1930s, but then after the 1950s, we saw Mao Zedong unleashing right, right. a terrible famine in the 1950s of the Great Leap Forward, the greatest famine ever recorded, and, and Pol Pot in the 1970s, and then the North Koreans again in the 1990s. And so the famines of more of our of people of my generation, of the 1980s and 1990s, in particularly in Africa, are actually much smaller than those historic famines, and they kill many fewer people. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for that is that actually from the 1970s onwards, we collectively, the Western liberal democracies, developed a really quite effective humanitarian system, which managed to keep alive many millions of people in countries like Ethiopia and Sudan and Somalia, um, who might otherwise have died in, 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 in permanence. Um, but then I conclude by saying, well, in the last few years, we're seeing a rather disturbing comeback of famine, right. um, mass starvation in countries like South Sudan and Syria and in Yemen. And in all these cases, they have something in common, which is that starvation is being used as a tool of war in order to achieve military objectives. And the, the main countries that might have stopped this from happening in previous years, you know, particularly the United States, are not really stopping it. They're not really standing up to it. So um, I conclude really by saying, yes, we can get rid of these famines. We can stop it, but we need that political determination to do so. 
and a good starting point is to just reflect on history and for those who were involved in, in humanitarian enterprises to, to say, actually, we, we achieved something really um, remarkably good and we shouldn't let that um, achievement be overlooked and, and, and rolled back. Excuse me. Uh, Alex, uh, so the World Peace Foundation, which, which, which you represent and work, work with, dates the, the this timeline of mass starvations that is uh, classification of, of, of mm. 100,000 deaths or, or more back to 1870. Uh, certainly, um, prior to that, there were examples of, of mass starvations. Why is it why is it this 1870 mark? The reason we started in 1870 is that it's almost impossible to get any good data, comparative data from before then. In fact, the, the data are pretty poor anyway. Um, and any rigorous statistician looking at this is going to say there's a big margin of error in, 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 in the figures. And fair enough, there is a big margin of errors, but we can still tell a credible story. It's much more difficult if you go back to, um, to, to the mid-19th century. There are some episodes which are very well documented, the Great um, Famine in Ireland, what I like to call the Great English Famine in Ireland, because it was designed and implemented by the, the, the English government. Um, of, the nine, of the 1840s being perhaps the best documented in, instance, a really terrible famine. Um, the immediate cause being a natural disaster, the potato blight, but the underlying cause being the policies of impoverishment of, of Ireland by the British government, and then an extraordinarily relentless and cruel policy of administering very small amounts of, of, of famine relief to the population. Um, with really the intention of, of forcing people off their land, of, of enabling uh, landowners to consolidate land holdings and basically pushing out uh, very large numbers of Irish people from the island of Ireland. Where of course, many of them came here to the United States. Uh-huh. Interesting. And, and, and where does this... Uh, where does this kind of uh, weaponary tactic... In, in your in your research in your view and in, in your experience, um, where does this originate? Is is, is there a particular uh, style of government, or is there a a, a particular government that uh, 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 theorized this as as a means of attack? It, 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 does it start anywhere in your in your it's, view? In some ways, I think it is probably the one of the oldest forms of warfare. I mean, the siege, starving out a besieged um, garrison or in, in conquering territory, um, in the, the sort of slash and burn style of scorched earth, trying to make the land inhospitable for um, the, the, the local population. That's been around pretty much as long as there's been warfare. And pretty much everyone has used it. I mean, the British, actually, there was a, there was a, British colonel who in 1900 wrote a manual for small wars advocating um, describing how colonial officials should conquer tribes in India and, uh, and Africa by using starvation. Um, the, the American colonists used starvation against the Native Americans. The French used it in counterinsurgency. The Russians used it. Pretty much everybody used it in one way or another. Um, and in the in the American Civil War, when uh, 
um, President Lincoln asked the, the, the German jurist um, Lieber to draw up a code of conduct for, for the Union troops. Lieber specified that starvation is, is actually a normal and legitimate uh, means of forcing the enemy to submit. And so starvation was used in, 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 in the subjugation, of, particularly in Georgia. So it's been around for a while. And it's really only in the last 30 or 40 years that uh, it's begun to be seen as really morally unacceptable. And, and this began with revulsion against the use of starvation in, in um, colonial pacification campaigns, for example, in Algeria, the French in, in, in Southeast Asia, uh, the British in, in, in Malaya, and then the Biafra War, where the Nigerian government used starvation and probably starved about a million Biafrans to death in the late 1960s. So the, by the late 1970s, the Geneva Conventions, which regulate um, in, in theory, the conduct of war began to say starvation isn't acceptable. And this has been strengthened over the years, um, though not to the point where there's really a coherent body of law to say, actually, for example, what you know, the Saudis and the Emiratis are doing in Yemen is unlawful and they should be brought to court. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I talk a little bit more about about that and 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 uh, our, our 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 neutral and mutual contact. Uh, uh, Florida-based J.P. Lindstrath has, has joined the program a couple times and, and, and talked about what, what he's what is in your view what's going on there in, in Yemen and 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 and, and how do we bring uh, uh, these people to, uh, to 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 task? Well, almost four years ago, in response to the the. Um, the Houthi takeover of the capital, Sana'a, in Yemen. The Saudis and the Emiratis jointly launched what they hoped at the time would be a very quick military campaign to push the, um, the, the Houthis back. And because they didn't want to launch a, a, a ground assault, because they recognized that would be very costly, they thought, we will use economic warfare. We will squeeze them yeah. by imposing economic sanctions, by closing the airport, by... Um, restricting food imports uh, by bombing um, essential economic infrastructure. And, and surely these Houthis will see sense and, 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 and give up. Well, it didn't work out that way. And, with, and it's now in, um, three years and 10 months on from when they started that campaign. And what happened was as, as it failed to achieve its political objectives of getting the, the Houthis to withdraw, they just intensified it and they bombed... Um, key uh, infrastructure, economic infrastructure, key roads, markets. They um, shut down the central bank, stopped paying salaries so that even when there was food in the market, people who were reliant on salaries like school teachers, like junior civil servants, just didn't have the money with which to buy food. The, the United Arab Emirates essentially put the entire fishing industry out of business by blockading the ports and bombing the, um, the small artisanal fishing boats al along the Red Sea. And this has created what is, is I think, undoubtedly the greatest humanitarian crisis of, uh, of our era. Um, and in my view, even though many of the, the, the individual actions could be justifiable themselves as not intending to kill civilians in large numbers or economic policy actions. Cumulatively, they add up to an economic war that is reducing the mm -hmm. population 
annihilation of Yemen to a point of starvation. And those who were conducting the war knew that. They became aware of it. They may not have known about it right at the beginning, but within months, there were enough warnings that this is going to cause famine. And if you don't stop it, if you don't allow the very minimum generous relief to go in, if you don't uh, allow people to earn, uh, earn income and spend their money and, 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 and buy food, right. we're going to have mass starvation. And they didn't stop it. And I think they are certainly morally culpable and arguably legally culpable for war crimes and crimes against humanity for, um, for uh, what is happening in Yemen. So I guess I guess that then kind of leads into there is a kind of since post World War II there is kind of a global attempt to govern um, uh, in a very civil manner and that would be the United Nations and, and so the more kind of uh, power that that we give to the United Nations is is there is is there a resolution somehow in the United Nations? How does the United Nations view mass starvation? Have they taken any type of official stance here? Well, last year um, the the UN Security Council adopted a resolution um, 2417 on armed conflict and hunger. It was sponsored by the Dutch, it was supported by the United States. In fact, the very first discussions were on this were under the previous administra administration, the Obama administration, but the, the current administration did support it. Then permanent representative to the UN, Nikki Haley, was actually quite forthright in supporting it. Not, I mean, she didn't single out Yemen, she singled out Syria. She was very uh, adamant that the use of starvation in the civil war in Syria by the Assad government was totally unacceptable. But this resolution was passed in May, and it clearly specifies that use of starvation as a military tactic can be considered a war crime. And it doesn't create new law, but it, but it, it as it were, provides a political chapeau and a political impetus for, for saying that this is unacceptable. Now, it hasn't yet really translated into meaningful action. So the, the UN has asserted this norm, um, but we haven't seen the, the, the type of political pressure being brought to bear on, let's say, in Yemen, on the Saudis and the Emiratis that would really make them stop. Maybe some pressure. I mean, we've seen um, attempts by the UN backed by the US to, 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 to bring a ceasefire in the port city of Hodeida, which would allow humanitarian relief to oh. come into Yemen in, much, in a much larger quantities. Um, but not anything that has that has fundamentally reversed the the, the degradation yeah. of Yemen to the point of famine. And, and and why why is it is it is it too hard to define and 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 to uh, you know, engineer these types of uh, restrictions to uh, war war games or uh, I think uh, a few years ago that argument might have been persuasive. You might have said, well, the law doesn't quite add up. But the lawyers have spent the last two years looking at this in some detail. And it's interesting that they, the conclusions of the lawyers, including the US lawyers, are that the law is pretty tough. I think the, the reason is political. The reason is that what it would take to get the, the, the Crown Princes, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, 
um, his counterpart, the Crown Prince of uh, Mohammed bin um, Zayed of United Arab Emirates, to get them truly to reverse would be strong pressure from the United States. And these are crucial allies in the Middle East um, yeah. for, uh, for, for the US. And, and, and the, the US president is not willing to put that kind of, of, of pressure on them. Of course, there is increasing concern in Congress. There's, I mean, Congress is, has, has been mobilized around uh, the Yemen issue over the last few months and, and has really wrapped the administration on the knuckles, saying uh, the US role in supporting this war is unacceptable, particularly because of the use of starvation um, as a tactic. And I think what we might see in, in, in the next few months is, is, is um, both houses, uh, Congress and, 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 and the Senate getting um, more vociferous on this. And, and, and perhaps the U.S. will, uh, the, the administration will change tack. And, and Alex, have you seen uh, any fruits of your own personal labors there at, at Tufts or, or World Peace or any of these other kind of uh, organizations that you are working and involved with? Can you share with listeners any type of, uh, again, fruits of, of your labors and any ways that, that you've been able to persuade uh, uh, resolution? Well, I think it, I, I, I found the last year quite gratifying, really, because I wrote this book. Um, I started writing it two and a half years ago, really in the expectation this would be an academic book that might be taught in a few courses that might, you know, have a few people would, um, that would, uh, you know, give nice reviews. Um, what I've found is actually that I've had an extremely receptive audience across the political spectrum. This is not an, an issue that divides left and right. This is an issue on which people on the political right in the Republican Party are just as um, as, as, as mobilized yeah. as those on the political uh, center or the political left. And, and, um, and, and I think I've I, I sort of been surfing a wave, but perhaps have helped also encourage that wave to, um, to come into being because my book has been, you know, quite widely used and cited um, in arguments by those, you know, in the UN, in, in, in the US administration, in, um, in Europe and so on, um, and, and in Africa too, to, um, to make these arguments. So I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling quite pleased with the, the progress that's been made. Yeah. Now, and, and Alex, can you draw uh, your thesis uh, a, a topic was the 1984 Darfur famine uh, in Sudan uh, that would be at the uh, Oxford University. Can you, are you able to draw any parallels to uh, the, the, some, some of these current threats uh, to what you had found uh, back in the, in the mid 80s? Well, back in back in the mid 80s, the the. Um, we, we were really rushing to do two things. One was to actually establish that basic professional humanitarian infrastructure and delivery capability that could prevent um, disasters like droughts or wars turning into, in, into famines. And one thing, you know, 30 years on that we have is we have that capability. There's absolutely no reason why a natural calamity caused by drought, by climate change, or indeed by war should cause a mass starvation. So when you see people starving, you, you really now need to say, you know, who is responsible? Starvation doesn't just happen. It's something that 
either people are doing to one another or it is allowed to happen. And I think that is um, a lesson you know, over my career that um, has has been learnt and, and, and an important um, sign of progress and, and, and positive change. It's just, you know, it, it's one of those optimistic stories that the world really can be changed for the better. Yeah, right. Um, as as a listener listens to this, and 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 you know, may not may not really think that they can make a change, and look for some of these 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 kind of signs. You know, look, this is this is something that, regardless of where uh, with the internet and the reach of the internet, where where somebody may be, this is something that could could certainly hit. Uh, their home. I, a topic that, that that I like to discuss is something called colony disi- collapse disorder, which is uh, you know, these various uh, uh, toxic elements, uh, chemicals used in, in 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 agriculture and that sort of thing that are that are killing honeybees. So so that may not necessarily be a direct political. Uh, uh, maneuver to to kill masses of people like like we're looking at in Yemen or that we saw in Sudan, uh, Sudan or, or even during the, the Nazi uh, some of these or Mao Zedong or uh, some of these different kind of uh, uh, examples that have they've been used throughout history but but this is something that 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 anybody and everybody can identify on, with on, on one level so let's then look at perhaps what's the What's what does the future look like in, in for 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 mass starvation? What, what what's the future of this? Well, I think one thing that we need to be alert to is that the 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 issue is going to remain important and become more important, partly because some of these wars are likely to continue, and 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 some of the 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 adversaries in these wars are extremely cruel, extremely. Um, disregarding of basic human values. The other thing, of course, is, is that we do have climate change and we do have the, the, natural, the, the, the greater possibility of, of, of natural calamities affecting different parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. But the, I think the, the core slogan should be no famine on our watch, because even mm-hmm. in the case of natural Calamities, the worst natural calamities that um, that have happened in recent years or can be imagined in the near future. There is absolutely no reason why um, those should lead to, uh, to mass hunger. And there are many problems with the global food production system, but one thing that it does is it produ- produces very, very large amounts of basic foodstuffs, um, corn, for example, rice, very cheaply. So there's more than enough food and food production capability to to provide for everybody and if and 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 if there is a shortfall in in people being fed it is because of a political failure and and it's it's actually remarkably difficult for a, a politician to create a famine you have to work pretty hard in the contemporary world to put together the the different 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 and difficult set of preconditions so that people go without food um, and in them remarkably easy to um, uh, to prevent. So it wouldn't be a, a, a difficult um, slogan, political slogan for any representative, um, elected representative, any member of government to say that, you know, that let's just stick with a very, very basic international policy which is no famine on our watch we can achieve it it won't take much and we'll make the world a better place and also a, a safer and more humane place do you do you see any organizations out there that might 
conspire to conclude to go against this objective of taking this no famine on our watch stance? Um, I think, um, I don't think anyone can openly go against it. Um, and uh, on the left or, or on the right. In fact, I mean, it was, it was President George W. Bush who actually said that. Um, when campaigning for president in 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 2000, and it's remarkable that you know, I, I think I, people will, will will readily say he made many foreign policy mistakes during his presidency. But one of the successes, which has not been remarked upon, was that there was no global famine on his watch during those uh, eight years. He actually did give clear instructions to um, to his administration, particularly the. Um, uh, administrator of for the U.S. Agency for International Development, Andrew Natsios at the time, don't let famine happen while I'm president, and and it and and they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, um, yes, there will be people who 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 will want to use famine uh, as as a weapon, but if 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 there is a if there is a concerted effort, particularly from the United States, I, I, I really think this problem can be can be consigned to history. And do you, do you think that do you think the United States can can kind of hold the beacon here for others to follow or, or would it be better received if the UN could kind of grasp this resolution? Um, I think I, I think clearly it needs to be done across the world. But it's a, it, it's an issue crying out for leadership, and at the moment, it's the the issue at the UN is being led by sort of second tier countries like the Netherlands, like um, like, like uh, Belgium, like Sweden, which uh, which is fine, but um, it's it would be enormously strengthened if the US were to come out and say, look, you know, we have historically led on this ever since the, you know, the, the, the U.S. took the lead 100 years ago in responding to the Russian famine. And, and, and um, we, had, we had former President Hoover, who was very active in mobilizing the largest ever famine relief operation of the time, which saved millions of lives. And, and did the U.S. reputation in Europe and, and the Soviet Union no end of good? Um, this is an issue for for um, that it, it it can live it can fly without U.S. leadership, but U.S. leadership would be enormously helpful. And what, in your view, what would be a major notch in that belt for the United States to to, to make that next step? I think um, I, I, one that I would personally like to see would be to see some. Um, uh, legal action taken to to investigate and, and perhaps prosecute those responsible for the famine in Yemen, and that means the two crown princes. Um, however, I think that's probably not necessary, I think, but but I think sending a, a very clear public message to those who are perpetrating famine in Yemen, also, of course, in Syria, and, and that's the uh, Assad uh, uh, government and its allies, also in in South Sudan, uh, where there's a bunch of warlords and, and and the government of Salva Kiir, just sending a message: this is completely not acceptable. We're putting you on notice if this doesn't if if these humanitarian crises are not relieved in good order very soon, then we are going to. Um, not only take political action, but we'll also consider this a grave crime under under, under international law. And, and for listeners to, to help uh, as they watch this crisis unfold, 
uh, as it, it seems like it's it's, it's inevitable to do, uh, as they keep their eye on the crown princes. What 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 particular sh- particularly should they be uh, paying attention to? Well, I, I think the, the humanitarian organizations should be supportive. There are many of them who are, who are, who are working there all the way from um, UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund, to Roxfam America and so on. They're all doing um, excellent work under very constrained um, circumstances. But I think also um, we, should, um, we should watch what our, our, our congressional uh, representatives and our, uh, and our senators are doing when the um, the debates and resolutions on Yemen um, um, come up, as they will again in 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 the next few months. And they and all all our elected representatives should be encouraged to take a a really hard line on this and say what's happening is completely unacceptable. And and if necessary, this I mean, this is this is a this is an easy win for those who want to. Um, to to push the the, the, the administration into um, upholding international public um, ethics in a way that it hasn't been known to do. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Alex. Uh, we really appreciate you for, uh, taking your time and joining Discussion to Truth. Tell tell us as as we close out our time with you what uh, what can we expect from you in in, in future? What's uh, what's down the pipe? What's on the coming down the pipeline from uh, well, from your desk? Well, I'm I, I'm working on on further developing the the, uh, the campaign around what we're calling starvation crimes, looking not just at prosecution but also on the reparations. You know, what should be the financial reparations paid by those responsible, and also just recognizing the crime, and and so that those who who suffer starvation, who are, you know, who who cannot feed their children, who are forced to bury their own children. They don't blame themselves, but they are emancipated from that burden of guilt and shame of, of not being able to feed their hungry families and can, can point at those responsible and say, this was a crime inflicted on us. It was not just a, a hardship or a misfortune that we or a failure on our own part. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. And and uh, do you have any uh, resources, uh, websites, blogs that you'd like uh, to direct uh, listeners to? If anyone who goes to our homepage, www.worldpeacefoundation.org, will see um, a lot of information about this uh, this project and, and and what we're doing with the International Criminal Court, what um, the campaigns that we're um, that we're running on this, and the additional research we're doing. Yeah, a- absolutely wonderful, Alex. Uh, any parting words, last words from you? Um, this is a problem that can be solved. We have we have a lot of insoluble problems on our plate. So when we have a soluble one, which is a very grave one, we should um, we we should get together and solve it. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Dewall, Tufts University. Alex, thank you so much again for joining uh, the program. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Alex Dewall, you know, tackling an issue such of this nature is large scale, obviously. But what Alex is doing is he's really getting into the economics behind funding a battle. And he's got to do that by looking at both sides. 
no famine on our watch. Yet, it's all driven by the goal that should be on everyone's plate, regardless of the availability of utensils and the condition of those utensils. World peace. We march forward and I... We'll be right back with my closing thoughts. You've tuned into Discussions of Truth. Wednesdays at 5 o'clock, I'm here. Winwood Radio, I am your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. Follow me on Instagram, follow me on Twitter, I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Donate 50 bucks to the program. Incredibly high cotton. Very comfortable t-shirt. Impeach Mass Media. Let the fire blaze in various ways Be it the road, be it the stage The flames stay high The mystified, the mist they fly Tell eyes, put an eye with they tell eye vision Subliminal programs or old hands in prison Hold hands with the ism that truly ain't him Paint him, paint him, decimate him Reduced to a fraction of flesh and skin We sing, rhythm for the culture, sculpt precisely Devilish encryption could never subscribe we Word, power and sound moving the molecule Wonderful, wonderful with many degrees Pepper decree, heat for reason Heat the heathens, pagans flee But these streets are paved with thievery False prophets, false hope, false believery Discussions of truth. Always intro, outro, Metallica. Seek and destroy. And if you question what should be sought out, look for that answer no further. It should be a corruption on any level. Political, economic, banking, societal of any 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 type of corruption is what we aim to seek out and destroy on this program this is Winwood Radio let me direct your attention to Harvard Kennedy School Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs this was released a couple years ago, Donald Trump's New World Order. It can't happen here. That was the title of Sinclair Lewis's 1935 novel, which is the fat, fascist, fascistic Berzelius Buzz Windrip 
is elected president within months, transforms the United States into an American Reich. Fourth Reich? Third Reich. Perhaps fourth. Well, maybe it just did happen here. That's via the Boston Globe. That's Harvard's Kennedy School. Things to look for and look into as you make an attempt, as you should be making an attempt, to preserve the republic for which that star-spangled banner stands based on democratic values. And speaking your mind, as I do mine every Wednesday at 5, helps preserve that. Because I don't remember fake news being a headline during the JFK administration or any other administration, perhaps Tricky Nixon, Dick, Dick Nixon. I'm being a little facetious. Media is under attack on all levels. And all I simply do is try to address issues that I feel you should be paying attention to because most likely they're not getting the airtime or the focus and concentration that they should be on mass media. Mass starvation. It's a very real thing. And like Alex said, the UN really hasn't defined its parameters on mass starvation yet. Who wants to fast? You know, I mean, I, I'm, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm being lighthearted, but this is a very real weapon that is being used and has been used and will continue to be used. And it's totally unjust. And it's wrong. Look, I'm a nonviolent person. I, I, I don't believe in wars. Have an argument. Have a disagreement. But find a common ground and resolution. It's sacrifice. Okay? Something like, something like a lack of food. Even Alex, he said, nobody should be going without basic, like, rice, wheat. Are you kidding? Those can be produced on such a very economic Low-budget scale. We shouldn't have starvation. Mass starvation, small starvation, minute starvation. We shouldn't have that problem. Okay, fine. That's my opinion. You've tuned in to Discussion to Truth. As always, like I've mentioned before, a couple times this hour, you can find me right here, Windward Radio, 5 o'clock, p.m. Eastern Standard Wednesdays. And until next week, happy 2019, folks. The message I have for you is simple. Be awesome.